You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Literally minutes after Mark Butcher and Ben Jones left the room after our recording, the press release dropped that England have included Haseeb Hamid and Sam Billings in the England Test Squad for the New Zealand series. Obviously, um, both huge stories, but particularly Hamid. Um, this is happening because Ben Folkes has torn his left hamstring. Um, Hamid obviously played for England in 2016 and had a few very, very tough years, ended up leaving Lancashire, joining Knotts. Phil, this is an amazing story. This is a rousing tale right here. I've never seen Taha happier, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah, look, uh, the story's well trod. Uh, a, a glorious elemental talent, fast-tracked in the England side, ordained by Coley in that uh, couple of cameos against India, and then the mother of all bad trots, so bad that it looked like he might actually uh, fall away from the game itself. Uh, it, it turned grim for him at Lanks. He moved on to Knotts. There were echoes of the old class last year, and this year he averages 52, 53, 53 yeah. for, for Knotts, who are suddenly flying. I mean, he's made a couple of hundreds and a 90-odd. Uh, the, the innings that really, really round it home for me, actually, was a 49 he made against Essex. Uh, over, overcast, leaden skies, ball doing everything. Essex had been rolled, and he batted on a different level to everyone else in that game. Um, and he played the moving ball, the late moving ball, immaculately. And I thought, all right, I've kept Stum as best I could, but I couldn't resist calling that out on Twitter yeah. because it looked like the boy had what we've always known is there. It looked like it had returned for him. We've been quite cautious in the show and our praise for him because of the, the journey he's had over the last couple of years. Do you, do you think there's a danger this is, this is too early? This is only six or seven games into his return to, to something like he is batting in 2016. I think it's the perfect way to get back in because realistically, unless someone busts a finger in the next 48 hours, he's probably not going to be playing that first test match. So what it does do is it prepares the ground for him and also for the punters as well, for the fans. I mean, you know, I've texted a couple of mates and straight away they're, oh my word, you know, <laughs> Taha's um, echoing how people feel, I think, around the game, you know, to see, see the boy back. But, Crucially, he can be broken back into the system slowly, 
he's not going to be opening up against Trent Bolt and, and Southie next week necessarily unless something unforeseen happens. But he, he is now a part of a conversation and throwing it forward. And we are allowed to do this now, legitimately throwing it forward. Um, India's attack are over here, uh, obviously latter part of the summer. And then, of course, the big one in the winter. He has to now be a part of these conversations. And it's, it's stirring stuff because people who know him know him as a, as a sparky, sharp kid who went through a terrible, awful time where, um, he, yeah, not only did he, he not trust himself at the crease, but he'd lost his love for the game off it as well. And, and so to see him back... Uh, is is a rousing moment for the game, really is. Mm. Um, and also, big news for James Bracey, who will almost right. certainly play the first Test match as as a wicketkeeper, batting at six or seven. Yeah, meteoric rise for for, for James Bracey. Uh, two years ago, he was he was not known outside Bristol. I think you did the first real interview with him. You were telling me about him before I'd even heard of him. He's twenty three, I think. Um, Sharp and mature beyond his years. I spoke to Chris Dent, his county captain, about him yesterday, actually. Um, and and he, he says the boy is, is rock solid, mentally rock solid. And he said every time he's been asked to step up at every level of the game, he's done it unflappably. And he will now almost certainly be keeping wicket and batting seven for England next week. Um, that is a huge moment for the lad. And... Probably a feather in the cap as well for the for the system as well. You know, fair play to the selectors, whoever they are these days, to have identified him a year or two ago as somebody with a, with a little bit of something, a little bit an un, unusual cricketer. He didn't have ways. a huge record behind him when he first got that Lions call up, so by they're no kind means. of backed up by how well he's done this year in the championship. But this is the first really big season he's had in first class cricket. Yeah, and that's three for Gloucester yeah. and has made good runs this year. Uh, um, including a particularly good couple of innings against Somerset, who are obviously a gun side. Craig Overton opened the bowling for that side. Two good innings, including an unbeaten 70-odd to win that game. That Chris Dent said to me yesterday that that took him in, into the conversation and into that squad, he thinks. Thing is, he bats three for, for Gloucester. In this instance, he'll be batting seven and keeping. Is that preferable for him? Possibly. Possibly. It certainly makes it more more likely that he was going to get the... Get, get that debut and I mean you're talking Lords you're talking Broad and Anderson keeping to those two so I mean what, what a moment for the lad um, interesting that Sam Billings is in as well I know obviously you've got Butler's Butler's unavailable best is unavailable folks is injured Bracey's ahead of him so he's quite a long way down the queue but Sam Billings hasn't played a lot of Red Bull cricket recently. His, his recent Red Bull record is good mm. but he's not played a lot of it no this is true but he's a very versatile utility player isn't mm. he and, and they like him around the setup. Chris Silverwood Lord of all he surveys, he's picked him out. Um, you know what you'll get with him. You'll get absolute commitment. Um, and and he's a cricketer who can fulfil various roles. Uh, he's never been close to a red ball test match, in fairness. Um, and in truth, he might not be that much closer now. You know, they are scrabbling around to try and cover all bases here. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's a good story for a very likeable cricketer in Sam Billings. Um, but... I mean, a word for Ben Folks. I mean, my word. It's a brutal turn of events for, for, uh, for one of the great, you know, glovemen in, in the world, as we know. He's played two, three test matches away from home. A bit more than that. He's probably, probably six or seven now. Oh, right, but, okay. but yeah, never played one at home. <laughs> never, never played one at home. And yeah. he looked dead cert to play at Lords next week, but, but he's not going to play. 
Um, yeah, and and to rip a hamstring a week out from a home debut at Lords, yeah, uh, that is a brutal turn of events mm. uh, for a brilliant cricketer who whose whose record in Red Bull cricket in England has been a bit indifferent with the bat. Obviously, as as a keeper, he's 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 untouchable, mm. but with the bat, and so this would have been a brilliant opportunity to play a pedigree side. He'd have been assured of those two Test matches, and he said to me and said to many people in the past that because of the the quality and depth of keeping in England, he'll take any any moment that he plays for England as as a godsend, as an event in and of itself. And and he said to me recently, two or three years ago, he thought I can be England's keeper. Now he doesn't think like that. Now he thinks every opportunity to get a cat will be something mm. to cherish. So for this to happen for him is a is a brutal turn of events. Mm, absolutely, um, I think we've covered everything there. <laughs> um, you've got a, quite a long show to look forward to, folks. There's a lot lot in it. Um, we hear about Ben Jones' new book. We get really, really into technique, which we don't often do on the show. Um, and that's a really interesting chat on that. So enjoy the rest of the show. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is former England batsman Mark Butcher, Wisden Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief Phil Walker and Crickviz analyst Ben Jones who has a new book out in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, ben, I think the last time you were with us was when Pant led India to that famous victory at the Gabba. So is it that you only join us when you experience a major life event? Yeah, yeah. I mean, both of those register similarly on the, like, yeah, the Richter <laughs> scale of my life. <laughs> um, no, I think that... I was slightly slightly less sleep deprived today. That was very much kind of just fresh out of battle last time. So hopefully I sound a little bit more, you know, with it than Wonderful. I did then. Wonderful. Going to kick things off slightly differently to usual today uh, with, with Phil's moment of the week because I think oh, it's right. so interesting um, and just an, an experience I think a lot of cricket fans would I hope you haven't have. oversold this. Well, it's, it's Almost certainly <laughs> have. <laughs> this is probably old hat to you, Mark. Um, but I went up to, to Beefy's house on Monday up in up in North Yorkshire, uh, and I've never been up there before. That goes without saying, and I never <laughs> thought I'd ever get an invite, but but I did. Uh, and we went up there, me, Ben Gardner, our empire empire builder, and and uh, a videographer as well. And we did we did a turn in Beefy's um, uh, lakeside hut, and we did uh, the photos are incredible. We did an interview <laughs> over the afternoon with his. His dogs running around our feet, and a couple of bottles of the Botham wines on the on the side. Uh, we had a we saw off a bottle of white. Me, me and me and Serian, we are like that these days. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a truly surreal experience. It's one of those things where when when you get the nod, you obviously can't can't hesitate. You know, uh, Botham's house kind of has sort of mythic qualities doesn't it in the story of English cricket you know famous barbecues and 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 middle of the 81 series and all of that and and uh I can't say I was entirely relaxed going into it the, the old Eels song Susan's house was ticking over in my head going over to Beefy's house I just couldn't kind of quite get it out of my head and and he was uh he was lovely so I say surprisingly yeah surprisingly lovely because he you know his 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 reputation is such that you tread carefully around him. You know, there are certain big beasts in English cricket and then there's he's both. Not, he's not Van Morrison. You know. No, no, right. I know. But but to the uninitiated, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, 
and and he was lovely actually and it's 40 years of course since 81 so that was the the vague hook um that and 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 the bottles of plonk on the table uh and I mean, I think I probably remembered his career slightly better than he did in certain points, you know. So, so I think I tried to steer him yeah. down certain roads. But he was, he was great, great value, and in really good form. And, Excellent. And it was, it was an unusual day, let's say, from start to finish. We were stuck on the on the train going up to Darlington for two hours stationary because of a cattle strike coming down from Durham, where a herd of cows had just wandered onto the line and and, and taken one. T- taking the train at full pelt from the other way so it was a it was a surreal day really from start to finish um but yeah one that i won't forget in a hurry yeah and and listeners you'll be able to listen to the conversation phil had with beefy uh, in a couple of months time we're going to look back at the 81 ashes 40 year anniversary mm. obviously this year um in conjunction with both and wines and i've listened to a little bit already and Have you? yeah and Is it any good it's really good but also the the background noise is amazing because you just hear the birds singing throughout the whole interview which is lovely um, yeah it's it's quite a setup you yeah. can well imagine yeah you, know, you can hear it over phil singing presumably. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um let, let's let's get into some newsy stuff uh earlier this week there were reports in india and the uk that the bcci had informally asked the ecb whether they would consider moving the dates of the fifth and final test of the england india series later this summer to better accommodate the rescheduled second half of the IPL. English cricket Twitter united in fury against the idea. Um, but last night, Ali Martin in The Guardian reported that the ECB have held firm, having already sold out the first three days at Old Trafford. Um, but I, I thought this was just the obvious thing to do. Um, but but you, you don't agree. Well, listen, I, t- I take a deep breath here. <laughs> As does the nation. As does the nation. I think... It's a massive missed opportunity. What? Bear watch, with watch me. Watch that career. Just Bear <laughs> with me. Right. Now, the ECB very rarely, very, very rarely, in fact, I would go as far in the last 10, 15 years as to say never have something that the, uh, that the BCCI wants or needs. And with the 100 sort of floundering because of covid and 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 overseas players cancelling contracts not being able to come this year is kind of a bit of a write-off ecb are absolutely desperate to kind of to make this thing work they have to be you know they've kind of bet the house on the hundred and it's kind of every turn it, it seems as though a greater power doesn't want it to happen and so for me this was the opportunity where you say okay we'll bite the bullet we're going to get we've got the wrath of english cricket fans anyway they hate us because of the 100 they hate us because we've, we we seem seeming seemingly sort of uh, ignoring them at every single turn so i'd say so you'd say well okay well we'll take it on the chin they don't like us anyway we will do this for the bcci on the proviso that we get coley we get doney we get whoever we like for three signed up for 3 years to play in the 100 starting 2022 and you you have leverage for the first time ever you have something that they need that they want um, obviously the BCCI is going to lose a lot of money if they don't get the the, IC, the, the, the IPL in the window you also have the, the, the extraordinary sort of you know spectacle of, of, of the IPL being finished um, you know at the behest or because of English cricket and you use that lever in order to get something that we desperately need um, and so I think 
that there is an opportunity missed. I, I completely understand why they didn't do it and why they it, I bottled it is probably a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Because they have just spent the last two years kind of upsetting English cricket yeah. fans in, in ways that they haven't been upset ever. And they so, already sold out the first three and days. And they already the sold out the test. first three days. And so their currency with the fans at home is at an all-time yeah. low. Yeah. But when you have nothing to lose, you know, perhaps that's the time where you, you make your boldest gambit yet. And so I, I think there was, there's an opportunity missed there. Listen, I, you know, I, I've made my, my thoughts known about all of these things over a wide, over a long period of time. Um, and that you've, you've kind of, you know, you, you've got yourself to a, into a point where, whereby you have very, very little manoeuvrability with your home, with your home support. But for once, you had you had the big, big beast on the table and with a knife hovering over its neck, and you could have leveraged it to something that would have would have done you a favour somewhere down the line. The, the, the optics are so important in all of this. Ian Watmore's just come into into the job, into the big job, and he's he's impressed a few people, and he's he's quite a steady steady hand, I think, after the more sort of volatile predecessor in, in Colin Graves. But if he had been seen to shift a marquee Test match out of the calendar with the first three days already booked in and a sellout in order yet again to accommodate the IPL, then that looks terrible to the average fan. And and it looks like you don't really have any manoeuvrability there. And it will play well. PR-wise, it will play well. Among the rank and file out there in the game, it will play well. Uh, where I totally see where you're coming from, we had the chance here not just to... to uh, reposition ourselves in the ongoing sort of power grab with the BCCI, but also to actually put on a world event in our stadia for our fans. Now, on the one hand, Lancastrian fans up in, up in Old Trafford would rightly be incandescent that their test match would have been shifted. Um, but the flip side of that, if we're talking about bringing the game, democratising the game and all, that, all of that, the flip side would have been that more people could have seen these great players across the country in this crazy jamboree squeezed into three or four weeks at the end of the season. Um, and after the shit weather we've already had, maybe we would have had a nice autumn. Who can say? Um, so I, I can understand. I can understand the frustration from, from your point of view. I can understand that. By the same token, rather boringly, I can also understand why the ECB have, have chosen this call because it will play well. Trust me, it will play well. Yeah. I, absolutely. I think it does. It, it, it does. I mean, it does play well. But I think it's, again, they've boxed themselves into a point where they can only be short-sighted because of the fact that they've, that they've spent the last two and a half years upsetting the fans to such a point where they feel like, well, we can't do it again. We just <laughs> simply cannot. How realistic do you think it, w it would have been if the ECB said, yeah, fair enough, uh, let's have the IPL here, but can we have your players next year for, for the next... That's a good question. Well, I, mean, but, I don't know. That. I don't know how realistic it would have been, but unless you, but unless you sort of dangle that mm. sort of Damocles over their throat, you're never going to know. Mm. Yeah. You see what I mean? If you, if you say, okay, fine, all right, but we mm. understand there's a bit of a bind here and, and we understand... We want to help you out as much as we yeah. can to get the IPL done. However, this is what this is the cost. This is what we want in return. And if the BCCI says no, and we're gonna we'll rearrange it somewhere else, it's fine. You've not mm. you've nothing ventured, nothing gained. Yeah. But unless you have, I, who knows? They might have had this conversation behind closed doors and come come up against you know neither side being willing to willing to move on the negotiations. Again, that's fine as well. You ask my opinion. That's my opinion is, is that I would have tried to move heaven yeah. and earth to make that happen as much of a dog's breakfast as it would have made the rest of our summer. But again, let's face it, it's a dog's breakfast anyway. 
it's you know there's nothing about the way that this summer is panning out there's nothing about the way that the hundred looks like it's going to go ahead because of the the lack of overseas players there's nothing about the way that, that you know I kind of it skipped my attention that it, that the oval wasn't the last test match this year that it was old trafford no, nothing is in the place where it would normally be <laughs> so if you shift it again who's going to who's going to notice <laughs> but you will get you do get the chance to watch the ipl in in england for the for the first time ever um which would have been extraordinary do, do you think it might have a negative impact on the fabled ecb bcci relationship going forward the bcci such as its power assumes that everyone will, should should and will fall into line and the ECB have maybe rebuffed them here? Do you think there could be a... I don't know, but we don't know what's happened, do we? No. I mean, we're, we're speculating wildly about what may or may not have gone on in the in, in the halls of power. And they, as I've said, they might have had this conversation. Yeah. But but one thing is reasonably clear, and I've got to establish that it's not absolutely confirmed yet. These no, are the reports in the last 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. But one, one thing it does seem to be is that the ECB have rebuffed the BCCI's mm. uh, specific... Uh, request now if that is the case that is significant in itself can i just say it's nice not to be the most contrary person in the room for once (laughs) i just 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 quickly yes to kind of reflect on that i think the ecb because of the way that they've gone about introducing the hundred and the way that they've gone about constructing the schedule over the last few years and the way they've gone about you know positioning themselves in the international community they've almost lost that ability to to sell another kind of idea to the to the English cricket public they can't go and say this is a three-year thing we're going to have Coley come in next year because as you say like we've they've put up with so much disruption they've annoyed the fans so much that they've they've lost that right they've even lost the right to have kind of subtle PR because I think you could sell you know the idea that we've got leverage now on the on on the BCCI and we're going to use that to like get ourselves back at top table kind of thing you could sell that very well and make and the public i think even the more conservative public who have pushed back against the changes i think would go all right i quite like us being a bit more powerful this is good they wouldn't necessarily just you know throw their toys out the front but because of the way that things have progressed over the last 4 years there's no there's, that trust isn't there so it's, it's harder also, it's, to sell it's, the audience is less receptive i think yeah but it's also where where it's played out as well you know the, the 5 day game is immovable. The five-day game is untouchable. The, the the hundred is this bastard that's coming coming over the hill to destroy everything. And if you were to shift things to lose the former in favour of the latter, then even though there may be some kind of real politic value in that, there may even be question it, whisper it, some entertainment value in that. Well, yeah, quite. For for an increasingly progressive fan base, uh, it still would be kind of PR suicide to play it out like that and 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 while while we can be we can be frustrated by it I think you know and and I think most people are around this table are broadly kind of open-minded about the hundred that is not reflected among among the rank and file and and something else we are working against that and their own botched something else has just popped popped into my head during during that and that is of course if you if you were to invite the IPL over at the back end of this summer, finish it off here and, you know, bring all of the, the, the razzmatazz that that inevitably comes with, you're then basically turning around and saying, well, there's not much wrong with T20. T20's a fine format. In fact, it's the biggest format that there has ever been. Why are we bothering with one that's 20 balls less? <laughs> yeah, and so I I, it's that. another reason why you can't do it 
But, you know, that, that one makes me smile a bit too. Yeah. yeah. No, I like <laughs> In that. fact, that makes me laugh quite loudly. Of course, the funniest thing that could, <laughs> the best thing that could happen would be that they go through all the rigmarole of uh, taking this hit, taking this public hit, and then it just pisses it down all the way through September yes. and they don't get to play the IPL. <laughs> that would be the ultimate yeah. way this could play you, out. you wait for a beautiful azure sky throughout that period yeah. where there's no but cricket. But then, yeah. well, you know, an Indian summer. You know, you, <laughs> that, that, you could, that, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter, does it? Once you've signed on the dotted line that this is, this is, the, this is what you've bargained, then it doesn't matter if they don't play a single game. They come over and watch it rain for a month. You've still got your, mm. you've got your deal. Mm. Um, but well, anyway, it's, we, yeah. I don't. We should move on. It's, it's, it's looking like the tournament will be held in the UAE um, for, for the, the second half of the tournament. Um, ben, more positive news around the English Test summer. That's that's your moment of the week. Yeah, just this morning it's been announced that um, there's going to be eighteen thousand fans at every day. I think it is, or at least the first three days of the uh, Edgbaston Test against New Zealand, which. It feels like we are slowly returning to normality, as, as we have been in the last month or so. But with fans coming back into the stadiums in diff to different degrees across different sports over the last month or so, the value of those fans has become really apparent again, I think. It's suddenly been like, you've realised what you've been missing and the sound of, you know, the Leicester fans at the FA Cup final or watching people at the Oval the other day against Middlesex. That's that, that feeling of something being alive and, mm. you know, and we get it, you get it with 2,000 fans, you get it with 3,000 fans, but with, you know, 18,000 Brummies kind of that's cheering six, England on, that's, that's what... we percent that, of the grounds capacity. Well, exactly. And, that, and that's, that's going to feel full. That will feel very, very full. And it's, I think it's quite nice, quite apt the Edgebaston, which feels like, for me at least, the kind of the heart of the English game. It's the, you know, it's the most vibrant ground. It's the most kind of intense ground to play at. There's a reason why it was the fortress for about four years. Well, I think. Well, what, 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 what part of the country? Look you around you, sir. <laughs> he says at the open. No, but, no, but I'm going from from my personal yeah. experience of the Test cricket that I've watched as a fan as well. Yeah. I've, I've I've done games at the Oval as a fan, and I've worked it, and I've I've seen games, and it's probably I think it's my favourite ground to visit. But in terms of that kind of raw, febrile fan-driven atmosphere. Edgebaston mm. is, the, is the biggest and the best for and me in, in, in England. It's only 15 days away as well. How amazing is that? We're, we're so close to it. I've got so much um, work to I, do. I, I, I echo most of what, what Ben says. <laughs> About generally. 70%. Um, uh, and, and all of that. And, and I wrote a kind of, you know, whimsical thing in the magazine about, you know, the, the, the poignancy of fans re- returning mm. and a celebratory moment. All of that applies Except at Chelmsford last week. That's all I was saying. <laughs> I was there for Thursday and Friday. It's my hometown. Yeah. I love the place. But my word, 200 fans in Arctic conditions. Um, the COVID police running riot. It was... It was <laughs> Don't think we need was, to go into it too much. No, no yeah. it was quite an experience. Um, but I was surprised that at the Oval, only having 2,500 fans and spread around the ground, not all in the pavilion, actually was really nice. The noise they made when Burns got to 100, for example, on Sunday was um, yeah. much louder than I thought it'd be. There were, yeah, and there were... Well, I mean, 2,500 is kind of a good crowd anyway, yeah. isn't it? Championship cricket. So they, they put a... I think there was a limit of 3,000. You thought, well, they're not going to do unbelievably well, given the weather as well, mm. to uh, to break to break that. But yeah, it was really, really nice. Um the the way that the you know the way that the ground's built now it kind of holds the sound in a little bit better the the, the outfield is is about a, a quarter smaller now than it used to be so you kind of feels like everybody's a little bit more on top of the action and it was yeah it was really good I tell you what was great you saw a hell of a lot of you know they look slightly miserable the kids it has to be said but you know parents <laughs> bringing young <laughs> bringing young kids in there was a there was a great moment a camera panned on these these two youngish girls they I mean they obviously would have been a, a, over the age where they're allowed to have a beer kind of like doing doing shots in the in the pavilion <laughs> and having a great old time you know it was whatever, kind of, whatever gets you through the day absolutely <laughs> it was like a preparing but, for but the, the beauty of it was that it kind of 
as the camera panned around, and again, I don't know whether our director was kind of, you know, seeking them out, but it seemed as though the demographic was not, you know, grumpy old I men saw that with, as well. with plastic it was a lot bags, younger. you know. It was a yeah, lot younger that's what than... I thought. I, I thought yeah. that too. Um, yeah. And that was really, really nice to see. And, and as I said, the kind of, the crowd did get, really got behind Surrey when, you know, when they were trying to trying to push on and, and put 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 runs on the ball for declaration and whatever, mm. and they, and, they, and they got a decent bit of entertainment. Whoever was left on on Sunday afternoon um, would have been a great an absolute burglary if if Middlesex had, yeah. had won that yeah. match. But it, as it, as the game went on, it seemed more and more likely that the only team who could possibly win it on a sort of day two and a half pitch at the Oval would be the team batting last. Mm. Um, and so Middlesex got a bit of decent batting. Some of their batters looked like they knew which end to hold by the end yeah, of it. Yeah, Nick Gomez was nice. very good. Nick yeah, was played, very great. Good. played great. Um, we'll get to the championship in more detail in a second, but I think it's worth covering the news that the Telegraph's Izzy Westbury broke. Um, she broke a couple of huge stories around the India women's team this week. The first one was that 14 months on from their T20 World Cup final appearance, the players haven't actually been paid the prize money despite the BCCI having received it. Days later, it was reported that they would they would give the players the money after Izzy broke the initial story. Then a couple of days after that, Izzy also broke the news that the four players who lost their central contracts recently will receive no payment for their work between October last year and May this year, which means that during a seven and a half month period, those four players, Ekta Bisht, Dayalayan, Hemalatha, Vida Krishnamurthy and Anuja Patel were unable to seek alternative employment or income um, and will only be paid match fees, tour announcers, yeah, brilliant reporting and shows the power of it as well. Um, yeah, unstoppable and well summed up as well. Um, yeah, Izzy is a, a one-off and, I mean, you know, it speaks for itself, you know, the, the screaming iniquities that are, that are playing out there. So, yeah, mm. fair play to her. Mm. Hundred, hundred thanks. There's a, there's a good piece on wisdom.com by um, our newest staff member, Sarah Warris, who actually kind of outlines where India have gone wrong since the T20 World Cup final. It's a timeline of... Uh, the mistakes they've made in not uh, building upon what was obviously a huge moment for the for the for the women's game, um, I would recommend that as well. Um, on to the county championship. Um, we all know what the weather's been like. Um, I think we were totally spoiled with four good rounds at the start, but three rounds we've barely got a game in. Um, just one result this week. But we've got to start with Darren Stevens. Um, you know he was forty-five actually. I don't think. Don't oh really? Didn't mention that. No. Um, well, if you if you've missed this, Kent were one hundred twenty-eight for eight against Glamorgan before Stevens hit. Uh, 190 off 145 uh, and not included 15 sixes uh, in an 166 run neither wicket stand with Miguel Cummins Miguel Cummins scored one uh, what kind <laughs> of record is that uh, I think it's joint most sixes in a championship innings yeah no I, I, it's one fewer because uh, Na- Napier hit 16 didn't he okay so one it was off Gardner, yeah. Gardner was that poised last, to yeah. tweet it yes, yes, it? yes but that it. last wicket partnership that must be a, an all timer sure, uh, an all time record one one not out, out of under. So I think that that is that is in terms of percentage of a partnership. I think that, that is a record. Must be. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Ever heard of anything like that, Mark? Any? It's just genius, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we were we were sat here sort of watching watching batters tie themselves up in knots in the with against the swinging ball, and meanwhile we've got the little you know the keys. He's got his computer out, and we're watching the feed from Canterbury, <laughs> watching Steve-O standing there and just pogoing it. It was it was yeah. joyous. I looked up his on his first class debut. I know we've done kind of like oh how old is Stevens? He was in a, a Leicester team against a Sussex side that had Bill Athey in the team who played Test cricket in 1980. Different kind of player. And two and two <laughs> future England coaches as well in Peter Moores and Mark Robinson. So he's uh, been around for a while. 
Um, I remember he gave an interview at the PCA Awards about seven years ago. So no, I got I got a, got a two year, got a two year <laughs> from Kent. You know, two year contract taking him up to thirty nine. Yeah. This was yeah, the best part of a decade ago. Yeah, um, extraordinary innings. One of the the all timers, I think, all time yeah. county county champ knocks. Yeah, hundred percent. And what was really nice as well is it felt that like you could see people engaging with it in real time in the same way that you know in the current climate with the champo, like people can just drop onto a stream yeah. in a bit more like you could just bang the telly on and watch yeah. it. So it was like you got your hardcore who are watching it and your keezy stats out there watching the whole thing, but you've also got people who are like. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll stick this on. This seems quite entertaining, and it's all part of the new, you know, being able to stream stuff. It's a different kind of fan. It's just like, oh yeah, I quite like that. I want to watch Darren Stevens whacking it for half an hour. Yeah. Whereas before, it would have just been a little a little byline in the paper, and people would have gone, oh, that's pretty good. It would yeah. have been, it would have been a stat. Whereas it was actually a bit of a it was a moment. I think it was, I think it was trending like number two in the Water UK. Water moments. Yeah. What? <laughs> and how, how often does that happen? In, you know, number two in the UK. What? In the on Twitter. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... Must have been quite a day. Well, yeah. We didn't want to take it away from it, but yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right. You know, my, my old man texted me, you know, and, and, and I told him about the streams like, a few weeks ago. He said, what? Really? <laughs> I can watch Essex? <laughs> and, you know, he texted me and, and, and my mates were as well. And, and you're exactly right. That kind of connection with it would be remote until until yeah. recently. And, and, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but this is the perfect example of it. On a Saturday afternoon, suddenly... People can crowd around and really taste it and savour it yeah. in a way they couldn't before. 100%. Um, Notts were the only side to win a game. Ben Duckett scored 177, not out. Luke Fletcher took career best figures. Um, and after a very long run without winning, they, they look very good. Uh, top of top of group one at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke to... I think to, I called that. You did? Yeah, yeah. We won't go into our county no, predictions too much. Broken no need clocks. to do that. No need to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after a very long run without winning, they do very well at the moment. I spoke to their captain, Stephen Mullaney, about their start of the season earlier on. It's been a great start to the season for Knotts. Not that long ago, Knotts had gone almost three years without a Red Bull win. And now you've had three really, really good wins on the bounce. What do you attribute that difference in performance to? <laughs> I don't know, actually. It's a really good question. Um, I, I, well, I think if you look back to, obviously, 2019, we weren't great. We had <clears throat> like a new set of players coming together, probably not all pulling in the same direction, different things going on for different certain individuals. Uh, not not bad at all, but obviously, when you want to win as a team, you need to um, be pulling in the right direction, same direction, sorry. Um, and I think if you look last year, we, we got... Um, Derby chased 370-odd first game, which was a great chase by them, and it was a great game of cricket. And then, So only really the second... We, we didn't chase 180 against Yorkshire on, um, <clears throat> on, a, on a good wicket. Um, we probably looked too far ahead of, of winning the game rather than um, you know building partnerships, all the things that you get said, rather than... So we saw the, the carrot at the end and sort of forgot how to do the middle bit, I suppose. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and that was the one, the one that was really disappointing. Probably a, a turnaround in... Well, definitely my leadership and captaincy and how I went about things and I did a few little things differently and, and went and um, sort of sourced a guy who I speak to quite a lot and, and who, whose job is in leadership and that helped me and then I think we, we dominated three games and, and couldn't get over the line whether it be you know if it didn't rain maybe we'd have got over the line probably two of them uh, and the other one against Lancashire would have been a really good game because they batted well too uh, in the second innings when we made them follow on so um, so we we knew so we we started some something special uh, last year, um, and then obviously we only played five games because of the pandemic, and then we went into T20, uh, and then we had a real focus this winter on the red ball stuff. So we did a lot of things as a squad, getting tight as a group, um, and then 
to see us reply at Worcester and Haseeb and, and Ben Slater back for, I think Hass back for 30. I think he was off the field for seven minutes in the whole game, which was remarkable, really. Um, and then we, we had a sit down after that game and, and said, look, we're going to Derby. Obviously, having Stewart for as much as we've had him obviously helps when you've got one of the best bowlers in the world coming in, into your side. And then we played Derby on a wicket that, that was green, fast, bouncy, and we thought, if we get this right, we've got a real chance because it suits our attack. And that's we've been trying to get pace and bounce in our wickets at Trent Bridge, which Steve Burks and his team have done a great job of, um, especially this season. Yeah, and then we had, you know, Ben Slater got a hundred, an unbelievable hundred, really, on, on day one there. Um, and put it, and I, I actually said to him, I said, Look, what honestly, I don't, I don't care if you've got hundred, what do you think is a decent score? And he said, I'll be honest with you, in the first 20 minutes when I was batting, I thought it was 250. And we got to a point where I think we were 192 for two. And we got bowled out for two, 260, I think, or something like that. So I was thinking, at the same time as we were sort of, uh, we got bowled out, so it was disappointing to lose a, a capitulation of wickets. But I was still thinking, look, if these lads get it right, we've got a chance. And we ended up bowling really well twice. Uh, bowling Derby out for 100 and, I think, 120-odd and 150-odd. Um, and that was that was sort of the, the monkey off our back, if you like. Um, first winning... I think 1,042 days or something like that. Um, yeah, so I think the belief in, in... That's a long answer to your question, I think. But, um, yeah, the belief you get from one win is amazing, really, and hopefully it continues. Mm. Talk to me about Luke Fletcher. I mean, he's obviously been a big part <laughs> for a while, but he's been on another level this season. What, what do you put that, that improvement down to? He's been a wicket-taking machine. Yeah, well, he's one of my best mates. So our kids are the same age, so we've grown... I've, I've not grown up together because I'm not from here, but the last sort of 12 seasons together. Um, it's just been a pleasure to see him. You know, he's, he's, he's as fit as I've ever seen him. His, first, his last ball is the same pace as his first ball. His accuracy has been uh, uh, unbelievable, really. He's definitely bowling as well as I've ever seen him. Um, and I think it's really simple. It's just he hits the stumps a lot more than everybody else at the minute. And he's bowling more overs. Um, he wants the ball. He's worked a lot in the winter with Kevin Sharon on varieties, but still he knows that his stock ball is very good, his position on the crease. Um, he's just been a pleasure to captain and, um, you know, long may that continue because he could do something really special. I don't think there's a bowler had 50 wickets since Andre Adams in 2011 or 12 or something like that. So he's got 31 at the minute. We know that there's a long way to go, but he's, he's probably not going to have a better chance. Yeah, um, and, you, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, but what, what's it like having Stuart Broad in the dressing room for, for this kind of chunk of a season? I can't speak highly enough about him this season. He's running every spell like it's a test match. Um, he loves playing for knots. He's he's very, obviously, well-respected within the dressing room. When he speaks, people listen. Uh, and he's done a lot of speaking, and what he says really bides into what we're trying to do as a club. Uh, hopefully we'll, it'll not be the last time we see him this season hopefully the gap between the New Zealand and Indy series he'll be available for hopefully both of them games but if not both then one um, and then who knows if the India test gets moved at the back end the, the Old Trafford want to fit the IPL in then um, hopefully he'll be available at the end of the season so he's been a pleasure to play with again um, and as I said I can't I can't really give him enough credit mm. Um, and again, another one of the players you mentioned was Lyndon James. He's, he's one of the newer names in the team. Uh, I don't think many of our listeners would have heard much about him. He's come in and he's done really, really well. Yeah, and it's not really a surprise to any of us. I think we've seen it. He's, he's talent for a few years now. He's, a, he's an Oxlade who's grown up on the academy. Um, and he's he's doing what we thought he, he, he could do. Um, obviously, his feet are well and 
truly firmly on the floor. Uh, he, he's a very level-headed lad. Um, very wants to learn all the time, wants to get better. Um, and hopefully if he keeps his... And I know he will keep his feet on the ground. I think he's got a big future ahead of him. That's not putting pressure on him. He's still got things that he needs and wants to improve on, which is a thing, but he's been a revelation for us this year, filling that fourth-seamer role and batting at five. A really important job. Um, again, um, just a great lad to have around the dressing room. And, and to finish off, I've got to ask you about the Steve Mead. Obviously, he's in great nick at the moment. We've got the England call-up today. Um, I wanted to first ask about what kind of impact has he had in the dressing room? He's, he's your vice-captain, he's the captain, the, the Royal London One Day Cup. Um, I think a lot of people might have been surprised that he's been given that leadership. Um, what, what's he like in the dressing room? Very, probably the opposite to me, <laughs> me which is one of, the, one of the reasons that we offered him, obviously he's going to captain the Royal London, offered him the vice-captaincy as well, was I think he's a great foil for me because he's really... So I'm not. I'm not trying to say that I'm not level-headed, but he, he's very calm um, when he speaks. People listen. He's very well respected within the dressing room. I, I, I'm not. I'm, I couldn't be happier for him to get a, a test recall um, into the squad. He's he's worked so hard over the last. Obviously, his season last year was hampered a little bit by the pandemic, um, but you could sort of knew. You could see he got a few fifties in them games, and you could sort of see that he was teetering on the edge of doing something special and then to get back-to-back hundreds at Worcester and then I think he got a 90-odd at Derby. Um, yeah, he's, he's just obviously, again, a pleasure to play with. Lovely lad. Um, again, hopefully big things ahead. Mm, I, watched his, um, I watched his innings against Essex. I think he only got 49, but he looked absolutely, he looked, he looked brilliant. He looked in great touch. Um, yeah, just, just, just tell me a little bit about how Hamid, the batsman, um, you know, you've played with him now for a couple of years. What are your impressions? Yeah. I don't think you'll see many people hit more balls than him and, and work as hard on his batting. He's he's the, you know, if he's out the night before, he'll still have a batting slot in the morning. And if there's no batting slots available, he'll say, "Or oh, can I come in before everyone uh, the next go up?" He he just he's relentless with his preparation. Um, he learns quick as well, so he obviously had them couple of tough years uh, at the back end of his Lancashire career, um, and probably realised that he had to to do something differently and get away from Lancashire for whatever reasons. I think the change has been great for him, obviously. Um, but as I said, I think I don't think you'll find a batsman who hits more balls than him, in, definitely not in the county game. I don't know about internationally. I've never been there. But he's, uh, he's relentless with his preparation. Um, and, you know, it's been great to see him. No surprise to any of us again, like I said about Lyndon, that he's gone and got the rewards that he deserves. Um, but... You've mentioned the game, the Oval. I wanted to to kind of pick your brains on on an interesting chat you guys had on Sky about batsmen's technique and how they've changed, um, or how there's a trend in recent times of batsmen coming over more over off stump, um, which obviously brings LBW into play much more. Um, there are lots of interesting things around this. Um, I just wondered the obvious counterpoint to that is there's a bloke called Steve Smith who does that. So so why why do you think he can get away with it whereas other people can't? Minus Labuschagne is obviously quite similar as well. Yeah, or is yeah, it just well, because they're free? Minus is averaging eight in the championship at the moment. I and mean I think sixteen test cricket. There, there are, there, exactly. <laughs> yeah. there, are, there are a couple of things here. If if you're playing in, in test match cricket on good decks where the ball does not move laterally very much, then it's probably not a bad way to go. I don't, I don't think it's better than, than the old way or better than sort of 
not having a, an off stump guard, but I think it's probably fine. You know, you back yourself not to not to miss it on the inside. Um, when the ball is moving around, however, I'm thinking to myself, crikey, you know, you, you really are giving the, the bowler a big target. There is another another point, and it probably got lost in the, you know, it just actually doesn't matter where you scrape your guard out. It matters where your head is. And if your head begins outside the line of off stump and gets further outside the, the line of off stump, you are disorientated as a batsman. You do not know where you're off stump. You don't know what to leave. You, How many times, and you guys have all played cricket, how many times have you you stood there and the bowler's run up, bowled a ball down the leg side and you've missed a leg glance, right? You missed what should have been an easy four four runs and it either hits you on the pad or, or passes by to the keeper harmlessly, right? And you're thinking, four runs, I've just missed it. Imagine if every time you missed a leg glance, the ball was actually hitting your middle and leg stump and you're out LBW, right? Which is basically what is ha- what's happening to people. The bowler can run up and has, he can bowl it at middle and it can nip back and he can still get you out LBW because you're standing in front of all three. You think that the ball is passing down the leg side because because of the position that you find yourself in. You think, you know, I'm, I'm close to off stump. Therefore, if the, ball is, if the ball is this side of my head, it must be going down the leg side. So you miss that leg glance and everyone's appealing. You go, what are they appealing for? That's going down. Oh, no, it's not. It's smashing my middle and leg stump out the ground. You know? What it also, what also the guys have noticed, and they, you know, they worked on the the games at, at Lords and at, at um, I think it was at Lords and at Cardiff, yeah. was that not only, not only does it bring the leg the, the the leg before much more into the game, you can you know you kind of you're giving away more stumps for, to the bowler. It also they're still nicking it behind two. You know, it's not as, so. It's not as though you're sort of like you've you've eliminated one mode of dismissal and the other one is, is has, has been given a boost. You're defending balls that are way wider than you would normally have to defend. Nobody seems to play a cut shot anymore because they never the ball's never wide enough. And so it just listen. The conversation came about because we're, we're all kind of looking at it and going, "Wow, this is you know it's it's tricky. The ball is moving around. There's a bit of swing and a bit of seam, but it's the ball's not doing something that it has never ever done in the history of the game before. Um, you know, and and this seems to be a, a trend and a fad." Um, and we're trying to work out what the advantages to it are. Now, of it, clearly, these the guys that you mentioned, you know, Kane Williamson tends looks like he kind of goes over onto middle and off and all this kind of stuff. But I kind of watch him and think, well, how often does his head get outside the line of off stump? Almost never. So that there's a discipline there, there's a skill there in terms of his balance that that means that he that it doesn't become an issue for him. The issue comes with guys who literally, they, you know, they, they pick the bat up and before they know it, their head's six inches outside the line of off stump. And they have no idea where they are. None. Um, and obviously taking, a, taking, that, taking your guard that much further towards off stump makes it more difficult to know where you are. Um, you know, it gives you more of a chance of always being in the wrong position to start with. You know, batting's hard. You know, the whole point is that you're trying to, you, your setup is supposed to be there to help you, not to make it more difficult for you. It, it does come down to the head, the head position in the end, and that's the that's the first and final port of call, I think, for for a good player. And it absolutely stands to reason what you're saying that if you are if you are further across your stumps, then obviously you are opening up more more modes of dismissal to to the bowler. But what specifically interests me, and you boys touched on it the other day, is 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 how a batsman sets up in terms of their their contact position now and. Without a doubt, since your day, there has been a, a, a change, for better or for worse, and the averages would suggest possibly worse, 
towards a more open-chested uh, stance. Now, um, personally, and obviously, I'm no kind of player. I play club cricket there, right? But I have changed, right? Now, it's it's changed my game. I've ne- I, I could never hit mid-on for 25 years. Just couldn't hit it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't really hit the stumps. You know, I was all right through there. I was all right through the covers. Um, since I have opened myself up, it makes sense to me. It makes logical sense. And the head, I feel personally that my head is stiller and more balanced and my eye line is more, more vertical because I've opened my stance up a little bit. Now, if I was, when I've been side on, I've always felt that I'm an LB or I, I take middle and leg to kind yeah. of emphasize your point. So if I do miss one on my pads, then hopefully it's missing leg stump. But by opening myself up, I feel like that ball there, which used to get me out all the time, or used to cramp me up all the time, I can now feel like I can hit that through straight mid-wicket. See, see the, the interesting thing and is... a lot of players are doing that. Physi- physiologically, some people are more flexible than others, right? So if, if for example, you have a, a really stiff back, i.e. Mike Atherton in the mm. last five years of his career... Ather's got more open and more more sort of chest on as his career went yeah, on because he, did, he yeah. couldn't maintain that position and keep his head up. Is that what it was then? Yeah, it was, but, yeah. It was physical, Ab- physiological. Absolutely. Right. So if you're if it's more comfortable for you to stand like that and and you feel like your eyes are going to stay more level, then it, then there's no there's no issue with that. There's no hard and fast law that says you need to stay sideways on. And in fact, most players don't are not perfectly side on. They really aren't. Most players open up a little bit. But but fundamentally, what you have to understand is the more you open, the more you open your hips away from sort of like the target of a right arm over bowler, the more your hands, your hands and your shoulders, they follow the line of your hips, which means that your bat is going to come slightly into out and slightly sort of across from from gully towards mid on, right. as opposed to from, you know, from first slip to mid off. Okay. So if you un- so if you understand that and if you play within the confines that that gives you in terms of technique like you think of somebody like S- Steve Smith he plays within the confines of where his hands and where his hips and everything come from. Mm-hmm. If you understand that then it's not a problem. Sure. But, but if you but what I'm seeing is is guys are kind of like doing this batting on batting over on off stump and and playing as though they're playing as though they're batting on middle and leg with a sideways on technique. Now you can't that that you can't do. Exactly. You know I, I would still. Adv- I, agree with I would that. advocate. I would advocate absolutely that you're kind of making life more difficult for yourself, even if you do understand that. But if you understand it and you're disciplined enough to keep to it, I agree. Then all is well. I agree. But most. But what we're seeing is nobody is disciplined enough, apart from the, the, the incredible names that you've mentioned. Sam Robson's a good case study. Now, firstly, Sam Robson play, has played one of the best knocks of the year, right? And you know he's he's a very good county player. So I'm not knocking his record at all. And there are, as Atha said the other day. There is no hard and fast rule. And players find a way, sure. But when you looked at Sam Robson, I think you boys took him as an example. He's batting on off stump, but he's also batting on a very, very very side on, right? So that ball that's in at middle and leg, he's having to come across a closed off front pad. He's having to, at the last split second, try and open his shoulders while at the same time offering that front pad to the, to the umpire. So that's a kind of, it's a double trouble there. You, you either you either go one or the other. You either sort of stay side on and bat middle and leg, or you go slightly more open chested and bat on off stump. So bumped, we bumped into the umpires. Athers and I were doing a little piece, you know, rain and whatever. We were doing a little piece around the side of the ground, looking at all the the old the honours boards and the the old t- championship winning teams or whatever. And the umpires walked past us. They'd obviously called the game. 
and, and we sort of, we, you know, they me- we mentioned it to them and said, oh, we can see his pad. We're just like the finger is just constantly twitching in your body. Yeah. You just think yeah. you're going to give them out all the time. This is it. All you can see is yeah. just pads in the way. And, it, you know. Yeah. And, and so the, the most successful players in that championship game, for example, where there was a little bit of swing. It was a good, really good pitch. It was a little bit of swing, a little bit of seam. Were the left-handers. Mm. Left-handers batting on regulation, middle and leg, right arm over bowler ball going across. The, you know, they scored all the runs in the game, the lefties. The righties are just tying themselves in knots, trying to, trying to do all of these weird things. You know, and, and again, I'd go back to the point that Darren Stevens is on the feed, standing, standing with his bat on middle, his head over the line of off stump, any width, he smashed it. Got a little bit too straight, he smashed it. Yep. You know, there was a simplicity in that. When we, what we were watching is people doing Gordian knots at the crease sure. to a ball that is moving. You know, that wasn't, those weren't seeming, it was a little bit dark and gloomy because the lights were on, but that wasn't, that wasn't going all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that going all over the place? No. One, one no. thing I want—I just wanted to say was that like it's not—it wasn't just that game. There is a prop. There is a trend in Test cricket of LBW becoming a, a well targeting the stumps being becoming a more relevant uh, kind of approach for bowlers. If you look at um, back at the start of the decade, those deliveries from pace bowlers targeting the stumps, bowl to top order batsman, averaging mid to low twenties. Now they're averaging about 10, 11. And that's a, that's a change over a decade. Now, we've obviously seen batting averages drop across the board in Test cricket, but they have dropped more substantially into a high proportion in that particular zone. So whatever batsmen are doing, whether it's fashion or trend or whether they're getting their head in the wrong place or setting up on the wrong line, it's not working. And that's with someone like Steve Smith, you know, boosting that average by being absolutely ruthless against anything on his stumps. So there's clearly an issue there in the game as a whole, whether it is just a trend at the moment that people are just getting themselves in all kinds of knots. It's, it's not I, like we are in the golden age of bowlers, but not that far. We haven't gotten, you know, batsmen shouldn't be struggling that much in that particular way. So there's clearly some kind of culture there is a, there is an issue there. For sure, there's there's a, there's a and and that's I think that's why that's why it came up. You know, we I don't think we would have gone there otherwise. But it kind of like, it's become rather than something that you sort of see every once in a while. I remember Nick Compton doing it in in sort of you know in, it, during his Test career, and he obviously done it for Somerset and been very successful. But I remember thinking watching Nick play. Um, I think it would have been Test match Lords against New Zealand, maybe that he just looked as though he just kept getting nailed before he'd moved. You know, he would stand still, very, very sideways on and on off stump. And as soon as the pace went above, you know, went above eighty-five miles an hour on a consistent basis, he always looked like he was late, always. Um, and so that was the first time I noticed it. But it's, it doesn't become a big talking point until the critical mass starts to become this. This is all I'm seeing. Um, you know, it, it, was, it, was an, it was, I suppose it was an interesting talking point. It's not often you go into that sort of depth with, with technique and it becomes something that people are interested in. No, it, it is interesting. Uh, I had a question for you, Ben, related to this. What, what's the role of data analysts in technique? Because obviously there's so much more data around now. There's a lot of data around strategy. But how much does data influence coaching, if at all? Well, I think I think with regard to batting technique, there's, I mean, me and, me and Phil were chatting before we jumped on it. It's like there's a danger of a bit of mission creep for data analysts because you're kind of, you know, you've got all this information, like that thing I just said there about balls on the stumps. And it's like, it's easy to kind of take that and then extrapolate too much and me to kind of wade in. I mean, if Phil's seen me bat, I, I, I know nothing about how to set up and, and play cricket other than what the numbers show me. And so I've, I, I lean on that and I think it's dangerous for people like who are not necessarily that skilled or knowledgeable about technique to go in. But what I think is useful is if, you know, it's more about reaffirming points. So if, you know, Butch is doing some coaching and he's and a player is 
they might know they're getting pinned, pinned LBW a lot, but they might not know that it's literally against every time the ball's on their pads, they're missing it. And everything on a fourth, fifth stumped line, they're averaging, you know, 200. Rory Burns is a classic for that. Rory Burns averages insane just outside of stump. He's brilliant outside of stump in test cricket. But anything slightly in tighter in... He's all over the place, and there's all these kind, there's all these kinds of little tiny margins for. And, and I bet discussion. you, I bet you, his numbers playing county cricket with the ball on his pads, he's, he's, it's the other way round. Because you just got that extra bit of time. Because it's to, a little bit slower. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think that's where it can come in. It's more illustrative, maybe, for coaches and people who do know what they're talking about, to kind of use it and lean on. And it's you know, even if it's just convincing players that you no, know, you are really bad at this, you're really good at this, make this tweak. It's like Ollie Pope's. You look at Ollie Pope's scoring areas over the last three years when he broke through, it was like, I think just under 70% of his runs came through the offside. You talk about no one cutting anymore. Pope, when he came through, cut everything and was just, just you know, lacing everything through backward point. And now he bats not just on off stump, but possibly well now outside. Well, now less than half of his runs come through the offside. He's yeah. gone from 70% to about 45%. And it's yeah. like, you, the and player that we are seeing now is a different and player. I, and I, so I, watch, I watch him and think, Christ, I wish I could move like that. You know, he, he's, he's unbelievably light on his feet. He's unbelievably quick at judging length and all of those things. Things and I'm thinking to myself, why? Why would he do that? Yeah, because he's good. Like he's in, he's, the, he's he, absolutely he, good enough not to bother. I was, you know, you, you, so all of this goes on, and people are sending videos around all this kind of stuff, looking at Barry Richards and Viv and things play. Now, Viv was probably the greatest player off his pads that there ever was. You watch the way he sets up. Viv had that sort of like slightly stooped. We're talking about sort of athleticism and, and having a back that was gonna is gonna work for you. But you know his both his toes would have been on sort of toes maybe on middle stump, and he leant over on his leant over on his bat. But his head was like a, like a ramrod, like on on off stump. Yeah. And he would and he would press forward a little bit. Of course, he'd get his pad outside the off stump line of off stump and smash it through mid wicket from over there. Yeah. But his head never his head never ended up over this way. And I you know the the interesting thing for me and I I only thought of this after the show was the, that thing that. Club players would do it this weekend. How many times do you miss? How many times do you miss that that little tickle down the leg side? How many times do you kind of? Oh, I've just missed out on four, but you're not out. We got pro players missing leg glances and getting out LBW, and that to me is just barking. Yep, barking mad. We're going to run through some other cricket that's about to happen and has happened before we get onto to Ben's book. Um, the Rachel Hayho Flint Trophy gets going this weekend. Uh, we've got a pre-recorded interview. Uh, with one of the stars of last year's competition, Charlotte Taylor, who spoke to Tara Hashim last week. She took a sixth for her in the final, and Tara spoke to her about 2020 and what she's hoping to get from 2021. It's really nice, that piece online. It is well. really nice. It is really nice. So let's let's start from, from last summer. So you're three games into the Hey Hoflet Trophy, and then you get put into the Southern Vipers squad. Can you talk me through the moment you get told that you're in, uh, and tell me about the next few weeks for you and what they look like for you? Uh, all the way through to the final and, and taking six wickets as well. Well, it was a bit, it was a bit of a roller coaster, if I'm honest, because I was just working at home. So obviously we had all been I'd have got a normal um, normal um, nine to five job, and we'd all been told to work at home. So I was just in my conservatory, um, and the squad had already been picked um, a few weeks before, and I was told I was in a group of like a wider squad of 20 players and they were going to cut that down to 15 of which I didn't make those 15. Um, and, but I was sort of told, you know, at any point you could just be ready if there was an injury or something to come up. So um, and then I got a phone call saying that they wanted me to come and join the squad of 15 players. There was a few 
injuries around the group um, and they just wanted to add me into the into the mix and I'd never thought from there that I was actually going to play a game if I was honest um, but I got an opportunity um, there was a couple of these injuries didn't sort of um, heal if you like and I got that opportunity to play in, in my debut at Hove um, and that was a fantastic experience. I mean, there was three of us that made our debut that day and three of us that had played cricket for a long time for Hampshire together. So that was really nice. Um, and I started the competition with two wickets and and some really tight bowling. And I think I just proved to myself on that day that I can do the same sort of things that I was doing in my club, you know, three weeks previous um, and do it at a higher level. So I was, I was really happy with how the tournament started and it just went from strength to strength thing. I think I just got confidence from each game that I was successful and just sort of proving to myself that I could, I can compete at this level. And, and then all the way through to the final, I mean, I don't ever expect I was going to take six wickets. Um, I don't think anyone does. I think they're going to take six wickets in a final, but I've had the strong belief that I'm, I can be a match winner. Um, and I knew it, you know, I've had experience. I'm a bit older than the other girls. It's not like I was 17, 18 and making my debut or playing in a big final. I was sort of like played a, a fair bit of cricket. There was no crowd, which might have helped me. I didn't, you know, it was not, that would probably be a big difference to this year coming into the competition. Like if we're going to have sort of a few people at our first game, it's going to be a very different atmosphere. Um, so, but that day in itself, it was freezing the final. I can tell you that for free. It was absolutely freezing. Um, and I actually had tonsillitis. I really wasn't very well the night before. Um, I, I was really like, my tonsils got huge. And I couldn't barely speak. Um, but I knew I had a job to do for my team and, and we knew we had a, a final to win. So we just went out there and, and performed the best that we could. And we came on top of them. And it wasn't just me. I mean, that whole competition, we all of us contributed in some way or another. Um, and it's just the fact that we've got such a good, diverse group of people um, and players and we all offer something different to the team that makes us win the games of the Vipers. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, Georgia Adams batted that whole competition brilliantly and set us up for a brilliant competition with the bat and supported by Ella at the top of the order. And we had contributions all the way through from brilliant fielding. Um, everyone played their part and it just so happens that I contributed in that final, which, you know, I was pretty happy with for my own personal um, development, but you know it's it's a it's a team sport for a reason. So yeah. very happy to now take that confidence into this season. And as a team, I guess with the with the tournament coming up, how do you think you guys are? How do you think you guys are shaping up? And is there a team that you guys are looking at where you think they could be they could be sort of the big the big challenges to to us winning a second title? I think we're definitely going to be. The team. I mean, after last year, I think we'd be silly not to think that. Teams are going to come hard at us, um, but it's a it's a different ball game this year because we've got two different formats. You've got the fifty over in the T Twenty, and teams might you know take to one more than the other. Um, and we're also playing everyone in the in the fifty over competition. Um, the T Twenties are still regionalised um, mainly, but the but the fifty over competition is is um, where you play everyone. So that will offer new challenges. We haven't played. Um, we only played the Northern Diamonds in the final last year. Um, we didn't get to have a look at them in sort of the group stages. So, you know, they're definitely a team that we'll be looking out for and because they were obviously good enough to get to the final. But every team is is got better and you would have thought with the winter, is, if every team's progressed like we have over the winter, 
then um, every team is going to be a threat. And just the likes of, you know, Lancashire and um, Central Sparks and, and Loughborough that we didn't that we didn't see last year, um, we've got to be wary that they, they're going to come hard at us as well. But I think we're definitely up for the challenge. And hopefully if, if we keep going the way we're going, um, I think we will win the second title. <laughs> In the international game, we've had two the the first two ODIs between Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Bangladesh are 2-0 up at the time of recording, meaning that Sri Lanka have minus two points from five games in the ODI World Cup Super League. The, the um, ODI World Cup Super League that yeah. takes up a lot of your life, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Not, it not, not quite broken through into the nation's consciousness yet, though, is it? It's not broken through into many people's consciousness worldwide <laughs> yet, but it will. There's it still will. time, there's still time. Um, sure. But, the, but the, the competition, if you don't know, determines the first eight qualifiers uh, for the 2023 World Cup and Sri Lanka. They're in real danger of not qualifying for that tournament at the moment because not only have they got minus two points, that's for losing every game and having really bad overrates in a couple of them. Uh, they've got India, England and New Zealand in three of their upcoming series. Um, so yeah, they're in, they're in real trouble there. Um, Scotland are 1-1 with the, the Netherlands after two games in an ODI series in the Netherlands. Uh, one very cool thing from the series, uh, a bowler for the Netherlands called Arjan Dutt has been bowling off spin to lefties but seam up to the right-handers. Lovely. That is, you Much don't see that heaven. every day. Um, and in Ireland, it's currently one all between Ireland women and Scotland women in the T20i series there. Ben, you have a new book out. Does he? Co- I do. Co-written with Nathan <laughs> Lehman, who is an analyst who works with the England team. It's called Hitting Against the Spin. Um, and it has lots of chapters on lots of different things within the game. So there's, you cover a lot in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a, in some respects it's obviously incredibly niche and very specific in terms of what it's covering in in terms of looking through the lens of analytics and data at cricket and looking at all formats but it's also I hope quite quite broad in its scope and we try to try to cover all areas of the game we the 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 opening chapter is like a long discussion about having won the world cup and it's all very practical and it's very much about you know using Nathan's experience in the dressing room and across the last five years that kind of much lauded Owen Morgan era of kind of changing the face of ODI cricket in England and that it's very much looking at kind of the the reasons behind it and the structural elements which kind of helped you know the players themselves actually come through but then there are other chapters I think which are you know very theoretical and very technical a bit like we've kind of been discussing today in terms of I mean the, the book takes its name from one of the chapters about literally the benefits of hitting against the spin rather than hitting with the spin and how how English cricket has always been very nervous about doing the one and very keen to do the other and how counterintuitively, you know, if you go against received wisdom, you can do quite well. And that's hopefully what the book's trying to do. Yeah. We're trying to kind of bust a few myths and hopefully not in too provocative well, a way. But it is called How and, Cricket Really Works. So and, and, and it's, it's going to annoy some people. <laughs> and and is, is the Raoul Dravid model hitting against the spin, is that part of the book? Yeah, it's very much part of it. So the it's it's takes the form of a case study of when England went to the UAE and lost against Pakistan in, was it 2011? 2012, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, start of 2012, wasn't it? And then they... I was there with that, yeah. And they got absolutely bamboozled by by spin and couldn't lay a bat on it. You know, England's greatest ever side couldn't couldn't do anything. And so they went away and they broke down their game against spin and they realised that one of the fundamental things that they were doing, we talk about getting fully forward and getting fully back, if you could, that's the way to play spin there is data that backs that up. If you catch it in the middle, if you don't get it fully forward or fully back, then that's the most dangerous place to intercept a spinning delivery. And England were basically playing almost all the time in that danger zone. They didn't use their feet. They weren't getting fully forward. They were sweeping. They were getting caught in in all kinds of bother. 
And so then they started looking at, you know, the best player of spin in the world, Raul Dravid. And like, this guy never plays in this. He uses his feet or he goes right back. He doesn't tweak that much, but that's the model. And you hit, and then they kind of found a certain degree of, I guess, kind of wisdom there that you can just, you just, you know, you're essentially copying one of the great players. No great surprises there. But then they looked a bit closer and they found that he was also doing this thing, which is fundamentally not what English cricket knows and he's not necessarily received wisdom, which is that he was hitting against the spin. He was hitting, you know, if the ball's turning... Into. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the phrase. It's a, mu- it's a much kind of softer way of putting it rather than kind of sounds a bit aggressive against it. And they looked into it and you look at the physics and the kind of biomechanics, and that's very much Nathan's area and you can see his fingerprints on those chapters in the book, but you've essentially got 35% 30 or 40% more bat if you hit against the spin. You've got more, if, depending on how you, when you time oh, it, yeah. the margin for error is so much bigger. You can make so many more mistakes. You can be deceived in flight and still have the opportunity. Now, I'm saying that with the caveat, I don't know how to bat. But if you look at the numbers and you look at the, the perception that batsmen have and these guys who obviously have incredible eyesight and can see the ball all the way down and you know, there's lots about the, the way that elite cricketers perceive deliveries coming down. When you take all that into consideration they have this huge advantage if you do hit in that direction. And overcoming that cultural thing within English cricket of you don't do that, you have to sit back or you have to sweep and you have to try and play them off their length. That was partly why England, you know, later that year, went go to India and they win it. They partly yeah. do it because there's, you know, the greatest generation of players that England have had and all those, all those brilliant batsmen. And he's have KP in the team. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, and they, they learned that and then five years later they come and they, you know, or however many years later, they come back and they lose quite heavily twice. But the, the, the reason the, is the if you've got thing, the ability, you can, you can do that and you can gain a huge advantage. The, the, great, the great thing about that is, is, is trying to... Is trying to remove the perceived wisdom around the old way of doing it. That's that's the most difficult thing. It was something that I that I was very aware of in in my career, or to, at least in the sort of the, the latter years of it. it. Was something my old man talked about all the time. Was that if if you think about having a square blade at the ball, if you've got to, if you're again, I'll try and be right from a right-handers point of view. If the ball is coming down outside the loft, line of off stump and turning back into the right-handers off stump, if you meet it. With the, with the square face of the bat as it spins towards you, you're actually playing with more blade than, than if you were turning the blade in the way that it was turning because you're, you know, you're meeting it with a tiny percentage of, of the bat. And the key, obviously, the key to being able to do that properly is by having, is by having good footwork. Now, most of the time, I remember fielding at sort of silly point and places like that, watching Dravid play. The reason he was so successful of that is because everybody thinks about playing a spin, playing it off the front foot. Now, Raoul would would almost exclusively get himself to the point where his back foot was almost on the on the tram lines where the stumps sit he'd get next to the stumps or sort of like allow the which is again against what we're talking about but the ted dexter thing yeah. he would get almost parallel to the stumps show his stumps to the off spinner and hit the ball into the spin off the back foot now obviously a hell of a lot more difficult to hit into the spin when you're on the front foot but if your footwork is that good that you're turning you're making balls into half volleys and the rest of them you're playing off the back foot it's easy it's easy to do and I say that with inverted <laughs> yeah, commas of course but that but the idea the idea is absolutely 100% right and it's the footwork that makes it you have to you have to be willing to go a hell of a long way back and it's not just it's not just mid crease it's kind of almost knocking your stumps over depth um 
which then in turn forces the bowler to bowl fuller, which means you get more half volleys, which means you can pretty much hit the damn thing wherever you want, into the spin, against the spin, with the spin, whatever you, you like. You take the risk out of it. Absolutely. It becomes, it becomes a lot more straightforward. And that's, that's the essence of it. Absolutely. But perceived wisdom is still, I mean, and you hear, you know, you hear commentators talking about it of a certain gen- generation maybe, or, you know, you go to your club game at the weekend and the old fellas doing the coaching will talk about playing, but they're not wrong. But there is just a better there is just a better way of doing it if you are skillful enough and fast enough on your feet and you know think about playing spin. I always remember the story that KP says about talking to Dravid and how he would then practice against spin. Take your pads off, forget about your pads. Don't you know? Don't be thinking about getting your getting bat bat and pad together. Learn how to hit the ball with the bat. And, and and if you learn how to hit the getting hit on the shins hurts, right? So so you you suddenly find ways of getting deeper in your crease, turning good length balls into short balls so that you can get the bat on them and then the half volleys become easier to hit and, it, and KP goes into all of that detail when he talks about playing spin all from Dravid and all from you know bucking perceived wisdom about how you play spin and what I think can be quite instructive about it is that as you say like this isn't stuff which you know we've come up with or, or Dravid invented this is stuff which players for as long as people play the game people have taken that approach but when it's one person trying to convince whether it's a dressing room or a batting order like no this is some we have a lot of success if we do this if then you need to do incredibly well. You need to nail it. So the the margin for error in terms of how you can be you can be convincing. You need to yourself score loads of runs, and then everyone else needs to be buy into it. Hopefully, what I think part part of the book can do is that we're not reliant on going out and delivering it ourselves. We can look at it in the in, in the in, in the in the in the, in the macro. <laughs> but but I think that opportunity to look at things you know with a bit more scope and a bit more kind of perspective people can kind of take slightly slightly counterintuitive uh, kind of recommendations on, I think, because it's not just, you know, you know if, if Butch goes and tells everyone in the sorry dressing room, oh, yeah, you should, you know, hit into the spin and then you went and had a net and you missed everyone and you look like an absolute chump, then they're probably not going to... Regulation. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you're not going to... Uh, you're probably not going to take it on board as if, you know, KP yeah. says, oh, just, just sweep. and or, or if Root says just sweep and then England suddenly starts sweeping, it turns out everyone's not as good at sweeping as Joe Root. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a benefit to it, I think. Question for Butch. Um... Obviously, uh, you didn't really have as many analysts when you were playing as, as you have now. Uh, what, what do you think a player's reaction would be uh, when analysts suggest certain things? I don't know how it works they, if they talk directly to batsmen or batting coaches, but if you know that data's coming from analysts, you know, what do they think about these nerds with laptops telling them about yeah, I don't, their you know average what? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, some, some of them, and this all comes down to personality with batters. And there was a, there was a little bit of this, but without the, being driven so hard by the data, um, you know, that started in around about sort of the two thousand stuff. Where you'd have the computer there and whatever, and you'd notice that certain players after they got out would go straight to the computer and be looking at what they did wrong or whatever, and there'd be others who would never. I, w- I was one that would never. I didn't want to see bad stuff. I wanted to see see good stuff. I wanted to feel good stuff, and. So you already had you already had a sort of like this this the different personalities in terms of the people who play the game in terms of how much they want to know, or how much of a reason that that they need to have to to justify themselves the things that they did, um, and and that's kind of where all the data comes in. Now I'm guessing that there will be guys in the England dressing room who are now surrounded by data who will kind of use it to go and reinforce good stuff about themselves and won't look at anything else. And there will be others who are forever asking questions about why have I done this? What percentage of balls pitching in this area am I doing that? That want to know everything. 
Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, listen, it, I think if you, if somebody comes to me and says, and says, look, you're, you know, I'm having a bad trot. So you know this already. This is not, this is not news to you. Um, you know, do, did you know that X, you know, when, whenever the ball is in this area, you do this and the outcome is X. I think you would be like, okay, yeah, I'll look, I'll have a look at that. I'll, I'll st- you know, the famous of... Stuart Broad thing about how he was told by the Knotts analyst mm. that uh, batsmen were leaving his balls more than basically every other bowler. Yeah, and he was like, "Oh, yeah, maybe you should bowl a bit I need straighter, to bowl a bit, <laughs> bit fuller, or yeah. a bit straighter." Yeah. No, exactly. And, mean, al- and also that actually his average was better when he, people were leaving leaving him less. So it, yeah. was, it was about yeah making the batsman play, and that's such a basic thing. It's that's again, <laughs> it's not new, but being able to put, being that. able to look at <laughs> you know, being able to literally show people this is your record when you do this. This yeah. is a record when you do this. That's so much more convincing to players. Mm. At the end of the day, if you tell players this will help your game, mm. yeah, some are just going to go, oh, shove it, I don't yeah. go. and some are going to push back. But the majority are going to listen at the very least, yeah. and even if they don't admit that they've listened and taken no, it, but, but it's going to help. It's, I think that the point the point is is that everybody that everyone will will silently in their own time want to take that on board. There are there are t- good times and bad times to, to approach people with this sort of stuff. Yeah, um, you know. There's no, there's, I don't think there's a single. I don't think there's a single guy that I'd have played with who, if you'd come to them with something that was genuinely and provably going to help them, I mean that's the important bit. To help them would tell you to go and shove it. Yeah. One thing which does, which definitely uh, kind of falls in that realm, is when you can say to a player that uh, what they did, which may have been seen, may have seemed wrong or even kind of be ridiculed, was actually the right thing to do. And there's a um, there's a chapter in the book about how the best way to win on flat wickets around the world, but particularly in Asia, is actually to bowl first. If it's a flat track, over time, as long as the pitch doesn't absolutely break up to a ridiculous degree in the last session, provably it's the best way to, to, to perform is to, bat, is to bowl first, which obviously is counterintuitive. Captains don't do it. And yet, if you look across history, it's a rough balance between the two in terms of batting first and bowling first. Who wins the game? And um, and it's kind of it's quite a playful way of approaching it. And I think Nathan's just trying to kind of poke the bear a little bit. But he did he did some um, he did some analysis using the Winvis model, which he had a hand in the original version of. And he basically decided, and you know, might want to stick your fingers in your ears for but for this, but he basically decided that NASA was right at the Gabba. That I was going to say statistically, get an advanced copy statistically years ago. he had the be- he had the best cha- they had the best wow, chance you've just lost me now <laughs> well I mean, the point that's, that's, horrend- that's horrendous because I tell you why can I tell you why that's horrendous I did say stick your fingers in your ears <laughs> because by the <laughs> because by the time we came to bat last, the cracks on that pitch were about that freaking wide. Yeah, no. I, well, the, the the reason why he says it as a playful a playful idea is is that you look at the Australian side. Essentially, the model said, "Lads, you weren't going to win that game. Didn't matter whether you bowled first. No, absolutely. So it the, didn't. But but actually, the best chance statistically for you to for that for that side, those players on that day on that pitch." According to the model, who knows whether that's reliable or not? But according to the numbers, that was the best way. That was the best was, route to success. Was chasing something with Shane Warne bowling on a bowling on a minefield. In well, the he last didn't. Innings. It, yeah. Well, he did. Well, he did because. He, oh no, we, no, no, no! I'm just did saying. We, did we Warne. or did we not get bo- get bowled out for ninety batting last in that Test match? You should probably know. But well, we did. <laughs> I think. I think we, we bo- did. The point we is did because I got forty-five of them. I did check. I checked. Right. I, 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 I checked this morning. I did check. No, but, but I think into the spin. Which is Bannerman. <laughs> yeah, you know what I said about poking the so bear. Don't come, <laughs> so don't no. come at me with that nonsense. Best forty odd I ever got. But that's the but that's the joy of it. I think is that part. You know, throughout the book, there is going to be moments where you know when you're prodding at all this kind of yeah. stuff. 
people are going to kick back. And actually, I think that's quite fun. I, like, I, do, I'm not, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect which to go, yeah, you know what, actually, when I was fielding for two days watching Hayden make 200, <laughs> that was absolutely the right call. No, but I do, the thing is, I agree with you. In, uh, from, a, from a captaincy point of view, I remember, remember doing this and having a huge row with my old man um, early season in a game against Sussex, where we'd lost the whole of day one of the game. So it's now a three-day match. And I said to him, if I win, the pitch looked flat. And I said to him, if I win the toss, I'm bowling first. And he was like, well, why are you doing that? I said, well, because we could knock them over for 150, score 300 and, and win the game with no time. You know, we don't, we're not, we're going to have to rely on a, a declaration or anything like that. We, that's the only way I can see it, that naturally we could win a that's game of cricket. That's the route to success. Exactly. Um, and we, we still row about it to this day. <laughs> um, and of course I was right. Um, <laughs> but... but but, you know, I, I absolutely agree. It was like the, the game out here at Surrey Middlesex. But the, the, the Middlesex had to win the game as far as I could see it. Had to in order to stay in. So my argument, the only thing I think Surrey did wrong was they didn't kind of go hard enough batting-wise. They, sh- they, they could have left Middlesex 320. Middlesex would still have had to have gone for it. And if they didn't, then they're, they're more of sitting ducks in the last six, 60, 70. I didn't, wasn't worried about the amount of overs Surrey left themselves to try and win the game because it's the Oval and it's, they, only, they only only had two days worth of cricket on it. It was always going to be flat. I just felt that they could have pushed harder in their second innings to make sure that they had more runs than Middlesex were capable of chasing. Mm. The, because the, 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 side batting, the, the side batting fourth in that, in that context is always the favourite to win the game yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. One, one thing that's quite interesting in the book that it, it focuses on lots of different things and kind of goes into... Uh, minutiae detail in some in some respects over technique but also um broader outlooks on on certain stories that happened uh the england world cup example is is, is probably the best example of that and there's one bit that i thought that was just quite funny uh so look looking at like what had gone wrong before the 2015 world cup so what did the analysis show were england as bad at world cups as everyone seemed to think well the short answer to the question was yes the slightly longer answer was yes they were really really bad um which is quite good but yeah you kind of looked at kind of the analysis england did after 2015 which is which quite interesting well yeah and part of the part of the selling point there i hope there's no point in buying this thing is it <laughs> Part of the selling point of the book, I hope, is that we're not just looking at the analysis. The guy who was doing the analysis is the guy who's writing the book. It was Nathan. Nathan was an integral part of that England dressing room and and part of that that era of English cricket, which was playing cricket in a different way and playing white ball cricket in a way which you know England uh, tentatively at times throughout the history had, but never for a prolonged period of time. And so, part what part of what Nathan was asked to do was to come up with essentially kind of what what do teams who win World Cups do? And of course, he said, well, they you know, bat ball well they field well they're experienced they deal with pressure well and then you go okay what is the most important indicator of success at world cups what is the what are the elements that we can control and reprioritize and what what nathan found was that if you look at all the world cup teams and how they've the world cup winning sides and what they've done in the years prior and in the tournaments themselves their actual bowling ability was quite not irrelevant to whether or not they won the world cup but it was much less significant than their batting ability. And that was over a long period of time in terms of the, the actual success of the players involved and as a team, batting ability was a much better indicator of who would go on to win the World Cup, which annoys people because it's the old thing of like, well, batsmen win your matches, bowlers win your tournaments. Mm. But actually that's not backed up in, in the numbers. And so part of, you know, England were lucky in the sense that they had a glut of young white ball batsmen who could be backed and they could say, yeah, we're going to prioritise our white ball batting. We think this is our best route to success. Mm. 
but also the numbers would have suggested that was the best way to do it anyway. So that kind of natural group of players that just happened to arise at that time in English cricket was given their head and given the opportunity to, to succeed and play. You know, they played all those matches with basically the same core of players for, for four years because England knew that creating a batting order that was elite and top class was more important than the bowling. And so the bowling came in and out across the years. We saw so many bowlers come in and play. You look at the, you look at the bowlers who played in 2015 and 2016, it's n- nothing like the bowling attack who kind of progressed over time, whereas the batsmen are the set, it's the same core. Part of that is part of the reason why that batting core is so good, and that's one of the contentions in the book, is the idea that this was a group of batsmen who grew up playing their list day cricket in England with 40 overs. So they were. You you look at the run rates from bef- before they before the English tournament was um, English list day tournament was fifth was fifty overs and the run rate was such and such. Then it was moved to forty overs and that's when you know Butler and Root and Bairstow and Stokes all made their debuts and then they switched it back to fifty overs and the ru- and, well, and the run rate went up during the forty over tournament and they switched it back to fifty overs and the run, run rate stayed the same. Do you know what's interesting about that? Because uh, I argued this all the way through the nineties was that that forty over cricket which was the staple of sort of of white ball or what you know it was red ball 87 world cup England got to the final 92 world cup England got to the final um didn't play any 50 over cricket professionally it was 55 or 60 and 40 every weekend you know there, there was this whole argument about you know oh the pro 40 is a disaster why are we playing pro 40 we should be playing 50 over tournaments it's a complete waste of time i always thought it was the best game we played hell of a lot of fun it, you kind of you have to you have to score a little, you have to score at a higher rate or all that kind of stuff and i always felt and this this is probably this probably doesn't get reflected in the book i always felt that county teams did not have enough quality bowling in them to make 50 overs a good game whereas 40 overs was a good game just tightened it up yes. there's that quality yes, throughout exactly 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 that and so it was kind of it, the 40 overs was the equivalent of playing international 50 overs. Yeah, do you see what I mean? Absolutely. And 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 I think that that's partly why these guys that were coming through they were used to having to face high quality bowling throughout the innings and score quicker. There wasn't that lull, that little just that little bit where the intensity just drops. And it's partly, I mean, this is this isn't in the book, but it's partly why I'm, I'm, I push back on the idea. Of, you know, we have to make sure our players play in the blast um, and not the hundred if they're going to go on and succeed in international T20 cricket. I know that the dip, because the difference is even less. The difference between hundred cricket and T20 cricket is, you know, it's, it's a couple of minutes basically. So the idea that you couldn't make the leap from a hundred game to a T20 game is even more, even sillier if they can do it from forty to fifty. But that's that's by the by. But I I think that 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 chapter hopefully for people who've read the story of you know. Owen Morgan's reinvention of, of the England team and they've seen they've seen read all the interviews and they read everyone's book hopefully it sheds a little bit of light on the kind of structures that were going on behind it because this was all introduced by Strauss who obviously wanted to prioritize white ball cricket in a different way to before and so hopefully it kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on on the yeah the, as I said the kind of structure behind it not just the players we all know Ben Stokes diving in it going for five but it all started four years before we know that but like quite where I think it's, it's there's more there it, Incredibly, it started the first morning after the first morning of the first game after the 2015 disaster. When yep. I, can't remember, I think it might have been at Edgbaston, I can't, I think it was. And Jason Roy, second, first or second ball, just smashed one straight to backward point. And Ma- Martin, like, Martin Guptill, who, who there you go. And up. it was almost like Owen Morgan said, Well done, <laughs> exactly that. But second ball, naught, but you've gone at it. Yep. And then Root came out, strummed a 70 ball 100. They, you know, they 300 and plenty. And that five test, five ODI game uh, series against New Zealand was a sudden and immediate change yep. of philosophy, attitude, and application. Um, and you would have assumed that 
dragging its ass out of the schmozzle of that, that 2015 World Cup would have taken a bit of time for it to bed down into the culture, but it didn't. It took, it took a day. Well, what's interesting as well is that the classic quote from the 2015 schmozzle was Peter Moore's, you know, looking which like mis- looking like someone shot his dog saying we need to look at the data, which, which was could, misrepresented. Which was misrepresented. But also, that England team used data less than the team that preceded it and less than the current team. They didn't rely on data particularly. It was actually something, there was a, a, misconnect, a disconnect there in terms of what the, the kind of cricket Owen, Morgan's want, Owen Morgan wanted to play. The data generally across sports says that the best, the best route to success is to always attack, is to attack more. The data will generally recommend a more aggressive approach. And then that's when you enter the human realm of trying to deal with pressure and try to convince people that actually, you know, you've got all these skills, you can, you can execute them. And it's partly why Morgan's, you know, he sometimes tips over into parody a little bit of like, you know, executing our skills. And as you say, like, well done, you've slapped it to backward point. But Morgan writes, he wrote the forward to the book and he's, and he kind of, he talks throughout that about how having the data to kind of push the, the, the team in this particular direction almost gave him the license to, kind of, to, to know in himself that this was right and I can kind of keep drumming this into these guys. I mean, when Sam Billings was on the show a couple of weeks ago or last week, it's like you, could, you knew that that dressing room was, was moving in a particular direction and it wasn't just because Morgs had decided, oh, this is the way that I want to play cricket. It's because actually it was the best route to success. And you see it in other sports as well. It's like Pep Guardiola doesn't play, try and play beautiful football because he thinks that there's an aesthetic value to it. It's like, that's the best way to win the game. It looks very high, you know, highfalutin and fancy, but actually that particular philosophy is what they think is a pragmatic way to win a game. And it's backed, up, if, and it's backed up by numbers. Keeping, as if being able to keep the ball was a good idea in football. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's all fascinating. So, Ben, remind us what the book's called and where people can get it. Uh, the book is called Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works. Um, Phil is holding it up to the camera as we speak. It's got lots of fancy diagrams on the front which make it look a little bit boring, but I promise it is very, very, very uh, kind of you engaging and interesting. Too square on here, by the way. <laughs> 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 Terrible back. Too side on <laughs> Well, orig- originally we were originally we were going to try and have a player, but then we couldn't uh, we couldn't c- couldn't kind of focus on who was the ideal person to have on the front in terms of the the ultimate technique. But yeah, hitting against the spin, how cricket really works by uh, by me and and Nathan Lehman. You can get it on on Amazon at the moment. It's probably the best place to pre-order it because it helps our uh, helps our algorithm. We're all beholden to the algorithm. Fantastic, fantastic. And it's out, and it's, sorry, and it's out on June tenth. Um, start of the second test against Fantastic. New Zealand. And before we end the show, a reminder of the Wisden shop in, in, in the run-up to Father's Day. We've got lots of there. We've got prints by Andrew Redden. We've got film posters of memorable moments from English cricket's past. Uh, we've got we've got beer, whiskey, whiskey. gin, whiskey, uh, glassware. Beer. We've got loads. We've got loads. Uh, so head over to wisden.com forward slash shop to get hold of that. Um, that's all we've got time for. Phil, cheers. Ben, thanks for joining us. Butch, cheers. This has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friend, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and we'll be back next week. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.